It is another blessed occasion, isn't it, to come together like this, to appreciate an assembly of this fashion, this form. Isn't it interesting that the human family assembles for a lot of purposes in a lot of places and in a lot of ways, and yet there's something so unique and special about the assembly of the Lord. Aren't we taught in Psalm 89 verse 7, greatly, in fact, to appreciate the fear that associates to those who assemble in the name of the God of heaven. It is the case tonight that I hope in some ways you may have left your songbook open to that song we just sang together. I had asked Andrew to lead that for the purpose that we're going to devote a few moments this evening to thinking about some of the wording of that song. Night with Eben Pinion, that was song number 452. This lesson tonight has an introduction that I'm going to phrase in the following fashion. Every one of us appreciates so keenly from the pages of the Bible how important the services of the church are, the assemblies, the worship periods. And one of the activities that takes place in that is singing. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Or as Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We have just taught and admonished each other. We have done that, of course, with words that were especially set to particular notes of music. But as you and I well know, aren't we taught, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. It's always thus a vital and significant thing when we appreciate that the words of those songs sometimes are fantastic sermons and messages and prompting guides. May we always strive to understand the words and the meaning of them and to sing them with eagerness and enthusiasm. But on occasion that might be difficult when we don't understand maybe the words themselves or the meanings that go with them or the thrust of the message that's attached to it. In fact, look at this song we just sang together. May I ask some questions? What is an ebon pinion? And why is it brooding over the veil? And what is Abba Father? We just sang those words in verses 1 and 3 of that song. And so for the next few moments, why don't we study together and try to appreciate what ebon and pinion is. And furthermore, the features about the veil that's mentioned... And not only that, the characteristics that attach to the nature of that phrase, Abba, Father. As we do that again, we'll time and again revisit some of the features of that psalm. So if you'd like to keep the book open to that page, it might be somewhat helpful to, to us in just a moment. First of all, the history of the song. As I looked up some of the features and the attributes of it, this song, as you may well notice is one we often sing before the Lord's Supper. In fact, that seems to be the most frequent occasion in which it's chosen to be led in the service. And I believe we may as well see why as we study the features of the song in a moment. But right now you'll notice the gentleman that wrote it. His name was Love Jameson. As far as I can tell, he wrote the song in 1854. Somewhat ironically, he's also the gentleman that wrote another song that we frequently sing called There Is a Habitation. Those two songs are very powerful in their thrust, and yet he wrote both of them. Not only that, you might note this. 
I was unable to find any particular circumstances surrounding the history of when he wrote this song as far as the circumstances. But that doesn't detract in any way from the message that so clearly is seen in it. He, in fact, makes it rather clear for those reasons. Night with ebon pinion brooded o'er the veil. All around was silent, save the night wind's wail. When Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood, prostrate in the garden, raised his voice to God. Now, that first verse that I just read has in it a number of phrases, and let's now devote some discussion to verse number 1. In fact, I've divided the whole lesson tonight based upon those particular verses, and so for the next few moments, what about a reflection on and a consideration of the words that are found in verse number 1? First of all, you'll notice it begins with the word night. A consideration is given of, as the author wrote this word, to his mind came the realization that some rather amazing and powerful event occurred under the shade of evening. But almost immediately he said, night with ebon pinion. The word ebon is short for the word ebony. And you probably are aware that on occasion that word is used. For instance, you can go to the, some wood places and buy ebony hardwood and thus perhaps build something with it or maybe even make a floor out of it. It's a very dark wood and very rich in its thrust and character, but the word dark, in fact, goes with it most notably. I might call to your attention, as far as I could find, the word ebony occurs only one time in all the Bible, in Ezekiel 27, verse 15. And it was there highlighted in relation to, again, a rather dark presentation about things that were brought from afar into the very nature of the kingdoms of that day. But beyond that, might we notice, if we now know that the word ebony refers to dark, what about pinion? Now maybe those of us who have worked on a car might be familiar with rack and pinion steering. And so the word pinion, at least in a sense, is used that way, but may I be quick to say here it doesn't mean that. It is not a gear mechanism. But what it does highlight is this, the word pinion, if you look up that word, one of the thrusts and meanings is... It refers to the wing of a bird, and most especially the tip of the wing of the bird. As you and I put some of those thoughts together, then what is it that the author of this song has put in place? Night, as it was referenced on this occasion, was a night especially noted for its darkness, and in fact that darkness was proceeding in the sense of a flight, a bird in motion. So much so that wing, wings of darkness, in essence, are being described. Night with wings of darkness. Isn't it interesting as you think about the character of that night? We would probably do well to go ahead and at this point highlight what night we're discussing. It was the night before our Savior was crucified. It was the night when, in fact, not too long before He had observed the Passover celebration with those apostles in an upper room in Jerusalem. But after that, he had, of course, instituted the Lord's Supper. And beyond that, they had sung in him, Matthew 26, verse 30, and they had gone out to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So in between the times in which those events took place, it was already nearly dark. But by the time they had traveled that distance, no doubt the fullness of darkness had come. Sure enough, this was at night, just like the song had said. Night with ebon pinion. But might we notice that that darkness goes on to highlight this. There's something about the nature of that ebon. It reminds us of how great the darkness was. What was the human family about to accomplish? The next day, they were going to put to death the only perfect one who had ever lived on this planet. They were going to ruthlessly and cruelly and with agonizing character put to death the sinless Son of God. Sure enough, it was a time reminding us of the evil construct of the human frame. Wasn't it Jesus who Himself had said in John 3 verse 19 that men had loved darkness because they wouldn't come to the light? Jesus taught them light. He put before them the nature of light and encouraged them to understand its thrust. But they loved darkness instead. And He tells us why. Because their deeds were evil. You see, evil doesn't like light. Evil hastens to find its way to the dark. Notice here, night with ebon pinion. In the darkness of that Wednesday night, oh, what things rested upon the mind of our Savior when in the reality of what was to occur that next day, oh, how dark was the evil constructions of the mind of men. In addition to that, could we say this? That song went on to say, Night with ebon pinion brooded o'er the veil. So, so far we've discussed night with wings of darkness. What does it mean to say it was brooding o'er the veil? Well, that word brood, as you might well appreciate, means to hover. And so the song basically says, Night with wings of darkness hovering over the valley. Was there a valley? mentioned in light of the location of the Mount of Olives? Was there a valley mentioned in light of the nature of that Garden of Gethsemane? As you and I turn to John 18, verse number 1, indeed there was in the events of that evening as Jesus finished again the observance of the Passover. As He passed out from Jerusalem, He would have had to pass through the Kidron Valley and up the slopes, the western slopes, if you please, of that Mount of Olives. And hence, sure enough, he passed through the valley. That valley also was hovering with darkness. One by one, as we come to the next observation, the song goes on to say this. All around was silent, save the night wind's wail. When Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood, prostrate in the guard, raised his voice to God. It is a bit interesting to notice. It says, when Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood, to our mind leaps the page that is known as Luke 22 verse 44. That night as Jesus made His way to that Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John, of course, were some distance from Him, and our Savior had entered into prayer. But it was a prayer that was recognized for its earnestness, a prayer recognized for the intensity that went with it. For in that passage it says, The sweat appeared on our, on our Savior's brow, if you please, as great drops of blood. 
Now, you and I realize as we, in fact, often involve ourselves in activity, maybe we sweat profusely. But have you ever had sweat appear on your brow so intense and so colored as if to appear like blood? I'm told by various references and articles from those with some medical knowledge that it is possible under extreme agony and under intense circumstances for one sweat to have the appearance of blood. Perhaps that very night, the intensity of what our Savior was about to go through drove Him with such earnestness and prayer that the text here by inspiration says that prayer was accompanied by sweat appearing as drops of blood. One more thing you might notice about that. Brother Andrew read earlier from Mark 14. Let's revisit one of the descriptions given to us in that passage again about the events of that evening. Beginning in verse 32, it says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. Isn't it so that Jesus gave an admonition, You remain here while I proceed to pray. But then the next verse says, He taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. You and I often use that word amazed to describe something in which we're surprised. We stand in true remarkable character as we witness a particular event. May we say in some ways the word doesn't mean that here. In fact, you may notice the word sore amazed literally means to be greatly distressed. To be greatly distressed. Jesus knew what was going to happen in less than 12 hours. Have you ever spent a long night? Maybe you knew that something was scheduled and planned the next morning. To my mind, sometimes comes the reality of surgery. Have you ever been scheduled for surgery and you had to beat the hospital at about 5.30 in the morning? And that previous night, you just didn't sleep much. You were a bit anxious about going under anesthesia. You were anxious about the nature of the surgery, whether it would go well. Our Savior knew that the crucifixion was going to occur the next day. Unlike you and me, He knew the future. He knew everything that those hammers were going to bring, everything the crown of thorns was going to mean, everything the agony and the pain was going to bring His way. No wonder that night He was sore amazed. But that is it all. It goes on to say in that same verse that He was also very heavy. Now that doesn't have anything to do with how much He weighed. That word, very heavy, identifies he was sore troubled. His spirit was disturbed and distressed within him. Not the fact that he was lost in any way, of course, but he knew what pain was coming his way. None of us like pain. I'm rather convinced of that. God has inbuilt within us a mechanism whereby we can avoid it. We have sensory perception in our body so that we can behave in a way to avoid pain. Jesus knew the pain that was coming the next day. The opening verse of this song, again, one more time, says, Night with wings of darkness hovering over the valley. All around was silent, save the night wind's wail. When Christ, the man of sorrows and tears and sweat and blood, prostrate in the garden, raised his voice to God. 
in the midst of a circumstance like this, to whom did the master turn? Peter, James, and John were no help. They were sleeping. They were sleeping. He had admonished them to tarry you here and watch for a while, and they didn't do it. These closest friends that he had fell asleep when he needed them. Would you and I have done any better? Remember, it was probably near midnight. Maybe it would be past our bedtime. Could we have lingered and watched for at least a little while with him? Why don't we go to verse number 2? The song goes on, you see. As we turn to that particular verse, let's again note the wording of it. Smitten for offenses which were not his own. He for our transgressions had to weep alone. No friend with words to comfort nor hand to help was there when the meek and lowly humbly bowed in prayer. It's easy to see that in some ways the particulars of the song have followed chronological order. Verse 1 brought us to those great scenes of Gethsemane. And now in many ways a jump is made to Thursday, Thursday morning of that crucifixion week. Smitten for offenses which were not his own. Just as we did with verse number 1, why don't we give some reflection to the words of this verse as well. Most of these are easily appreciated, it seems, in terms of the meaning. Smitten. That too takes us right back to the Word of God, doesn't it? In fact, Mr. Jameson quoted directly from Isaiah 53. In that passage that makes reference to the suffering servant, that 53rd chapter of Isaiah is often called history written before its time. That description of that occasion that went like this. In Isaiah 53, as it begins in verse number 1, a description rather remarkable in character is given. It says, as it speaks about verses 3 and 4, smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted. Now notice there the inspired writer highlighted that this is going to happen to a particular individual. And aren't you still impressed that that was the very passage that the Ethiopian was reading in Acts chapter 8? And he asked, who is the man speaking about? Himself or somebody else? And Philip began at that very passage, John, or rather Acts 8.35, and preached to him Jesus, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And when we did see him, we esteemed him not. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse number 4 then of Isaiah 53 goes on to say, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But then verse number 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every man hath turned to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What stirring words those are. And yet, Mr. Jameson included some of them verbatim in this song. Smitten for offenses which were not his own. 
I suspect there's something to be said for the fact that one can at least thrive beneath the load of offenses when they're your own, when we feel punishment for something that we've done. But yet, the inspired writer of old said that it was not for his offenses that he was being punished. It was for your offenses and mine. Didn't Paul say it like this in Romans 5 verse 8? But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, what magnificence there is in reflecting on the cross. And may you and I, every time we sing Psalm 452, think about some of the features we're studying tonight. Let's go on now to some of the next elements in that verse. Smitten for offenses which were not His own, He for our transgressions had to weep alone. Why don't we give some thought to that one? Not many hours earlier that very night, Jesus had directly told those apostles, as He quoted from Zechariah 13, He said, The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. He foretold the very matter of the character of the events of that night. Sure enough, the shepherd, wasn't Jesus the good shepherd? In John chapter 10, verses 10 and following, He labeled, He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice. But isn't it true, that night the shepherd was smitten. When they arrested our Savior in Gethsemane, after the events of the three, Peter, James, and John, they'd been asleep, and ultimately they awoke the third time after Jesus came back to them, and He said, The time is at hand. Judas was coming. Judas planted the betrayal kiss on our Savior, and they soon bound Him. They arrested Him. And sure enough, all the disciples fled. Mark 14, verse 50. Our Savior was left all alone. He who had helped so many, He who had healed so many, He who had set before them the perfect example of godliness and truth, He now stood all alone. Now it's true that as they journeyed to the places where the trials, John was the one that stayed the closest. Peter followed from a distance. But you'll notice even our Savior, there was a very real sense in which He was all alone. Isn't it true that one by one we even now perhaps think of the events on the cross? No, that's true. There were some standing there who were gazing at Him. His mother Mary was in the vicinity. Others were watching. And yet on the cross, Jesus could utter this prayer, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even the Father, in some critical way, had forsaken the Son. You and I, in light of this verse we've just looked at, verse 2, we know why. It's not because He didn't love Jesus. It's not because the Father had a disdain or a hatred for Him. That wasn't it at all. Why did He forsake Him? I'd submit to you Habakkuk 1.13 poses likely the answer. The text there reads, Our Father, Jehovah God, is of purer eyes than to look on iniquity. And yet what is it that our Savior was carrying upon His shoulders and in His body while He hanged on that cross? He was carrying our sins. He was carrying our iniquities. He was carrying our stubborn refusals. And yet God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. I'd submit to you that's why the Father looked away for a moment. 
He couldn't bear the load of sins for multitudes of humanity carried all at once in one location. May you and I never forget night with Eben Pinion. Sure enough, he was smitten for our offenses, not his own. Let's read in verse 2 a little bit further. Smitten for offenses which were not his own, he for our transgressions had to weep alone. No friend with words to comfort, nor hand to help was there when the meek and lowly humbly bowed in prayer. We've only highlighted so far the reality that went with Peter, James, and John. It is in that sense I would call to your attention the Lord's statement to them. Remember, He had told them, Watch with me. Jesus had told Peter, James, and John, Watch! And they fell asleep. They drifted into slumber. You'll notice they seemingly had no sense of what was about to occur the next day. Despite the fact Jesus had told them, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, Luke 18, 31-34, and He's going to be killed. They seemingly were oblivious to it. Watch with me, would you? And they fell asleep. How angry would you and I perhaps be if we gave someone that admonition and we were so troubled and so sore amazed and yet they couldn't even watch with us for an hour. You'll notice one final thing on that slide. The very words of this verse, no wonder it takes us to this keeping of the Lord's Supper. I mentioned a moment ago, we most often sing this right before we partake of the Lord's Supper. We can now see why. When you and I partake of that supper, may we think with criticalness and may we think with clearness about the gravity of that moment. Aren't we taught in 1 Corinthians 11, when we observe that supper, we must never ever take it trivially. Never ever observe it in a flippant or irreverent way because Paul there said that he that takes the supper and does not discern the Lord's body, drinks damnation to himself. We're going to have to give an answer the day of judgment if we have failed to partake of that Lord's Supper reverently, humbly, and in remembrance of Him. As shocking as all of that may seem, it brings us to close that slide in this way. This song is then a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? that your life and mine as a Christian should be a reflection of the very life out of which we're reading in this, in this song. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11, we're told there that we bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That means that when others see you and me, they see the one that has died for us. If we're faithful Christians, they see one who we are trying to emulate and follow every day. So it is in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Isn't it true in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15? The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead and that He died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Are you and I living for Jesus? Maybe this song will remind us time and again that we should. 
Verse number 2 closes with one final remark. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, that Jesus suffered for the unjust, for you and for me. Why don't we come to verse number 3. As we've done in the past for those first two verses, let me read that one. Verse number 3. Abba, Father, Father, if indeed it may, let this cup of anguish pass from me, I pray. Yet if it must be suffered by me, thine only Son, Abba, Father, Father, let thy will be done. That third song, or rather that third verse, takes us again back to the scenes in Gethsemane. It's interesting the manner in which Mr. Jameson has written it. Verse 1 was in Gethsemane. Verse 2, by and large, on the cross. Verse 3, back in the throes of Gethsemane again. But you'll notice it begins like this. Our Savior prayed with earnestness, Let this cup pass from me. You'll notice as we revisit that text in Mark, number, in Mark 14, verse 35, and he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Our Savior prayed that the hour might pass from him. In Matthew's version, a reference that the cup might pass from him. Either way, you and I look at that, the following thought is before us. I began this lesson tonight by reminding us our Savior, knowing the future, knew very well what the events of the next day were going to bring. He knew His death was the reality. He prayed that the cup might pass from Him. There isn't anything wrong, you see, with you and I realizing that we should petition God in the hope that we might avoid some pain or avoid some tragedies. We understand there isn't anything wrong with that. Jesus did it. He knew very well that that death was going to be excruciating. It was going to be tremendously painful. It was going to be humiliating. He was going to be numbered with the transgressors when He Himself had done no sin. There's a thief going to be on each side of Him. Our Savior was pure and sinless and guileless. He had never done anything wrong in word or in deed or even in thought. And yet, verse number 3, it was in that avenue that He petitioned His heavenly Father. Isn't the word interesting? He didn't say, my Father in heaven. He used a different word here. Abba. Abba. Abba, Father, Father, if indeed it may. You'll notice in Mark chapter 14, verse number 36, that very word occurs. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. What does that word Abba mean? I realize that you and I live here in the United States, and we speak English, of course. But those in that day, they of course spoke a different language than us. Is there something special, something unique, something meaningful, and something very telling about this word our Savior used? Let's develop it like this. The word Abba is an Aramaic word. Now, some of the Bible was written in Aramaic, the Old Testament sections, especially in Esther and Daniel. 
And we remember, too, that our Savior was conversant with Aramaic as well. But note the significance. That word is often used to refer to one's father indeed. But it is a reference, not just a quoting of the word father, not just the same as it, but it carries a different sense. It carries a different thrust. It conveys a warm intimacy. It conveys a very strong fatherly respect. When our Savior was there in the throes of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, Father. And as our Savior prayed that, it conveyed a strong connection, a sense of great respect for that Father in heaven. Abba, Father, Father, if indeed it may. Let this cup of suffering pass from me, I pray. One more thing might be carefully noted. As far as I could find, there were two other places in the New Testament wherein that word Abba occurs. One of them is in Romans 8, verse 15. The other in Galatians 4, verse 6. In those particular passages, we easily can see in the Romans text, there was a remarkable reference to the greatness of God, one more time referred to as Abba. But may I suggest the Galatians passage in some ways is even stronger. In Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, there's a statement made about how that in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. But then in verse 6, in reference to all those that would be Christians, we could refer to God using the word Abba. Do you and I have a closeness to God that permits us to refer to Him not in a distant way merely as Father, but in a close and filial respect of Abba? Do you feel close to God? Do you feel a connection, a closeness to Him that would permit you with convenience and comfort in prayer to refer to Him as Abba? Perhaps that's a goal we should seek to accomplish. In His Word, He reveals Himself to us. And just as surely as Jesus was able to so lovingly refer to Him as Abba, might you and I strive to accomplish something similar. This word Abba leads us to know to speak about God with that kind of word, again, not merely refers to a distant and powerful one who perhaps disciplines, but this allows one to think about the compassionate care of Father. Do you and I think of God that way? As great a being as He is, as remarkable and incredible and awesome and amazing as He is, He cares about me and He cares about you. He wants what's best for us, every one of us. He wants us to be healthy and happy. He wants us to be faithful and He wants us to live with Him forever. He's given us His Word with all the instructions necessary to make that happen. We should then be able to, with loving character, refer to Him as Abba, our kind and warm Heavenly Father. Aren't we taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and following, that we know in the earthly realm we ask of our fathers an egg and He's not going to give us a rock. We ask of our, heavenly, our, our earthly fathers an element and He's not going to give us a snake. Didn't Jesus say, if you as fathers give good things to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to you when you ask Him? May we in sweetness and in loving submission approach our Abba 
and ask of Him in such beautiful ways like we've studied in verse 3 of this song entitled Night with Ebon Pinion. Maybe one last thing on that slide. Highlights that, doesn't that verse say this? Yet if it must be suffered by me thine only Son, Abba, Father, Father, let thy will be done. Even though he knew what was going to happen if the plans continued, he nonetheless fully submitted to the will of his Father. Let thy will be done. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We noted this morning that it's always our desire to pray in such a way that God would hear our prayers. And in so doing, of course, that means to ask according to His will and to not ask amiss. And yet, you and I know God's will is sovereign. It is supreme. The great characters of the Bible, including the prophets and so many others, they lived a life of submission to God. And we even see it exemplified, of course, in Jesus. Didn't Jesus say in John 8 verse 29, I always do those things that please Him. If only you and I could make that statement. That I always do those things to please Him. That kind of motivation and that kind of compelling thrust brings us to the close of verse number 3. And with it, the close of this lesson as well. Let's conclude it perhaps like this. We've looked at each one of the verses of that song, and I hope it has been a fruitful exercise that when we sing that song, perhaps in future days, we'll have a clear image and a clear visualization of what it is that that song is saying so that we can sing with the Spirit and sing with the understanding. I would summarize it that it centers on those events in Gethsemane and on the cross that surround the death of our Savior. How meaningful, how compelling, and in our mind's eye, how swiftly we can revisit those scenes and sing that song with such fervor and zeal. Tonight, as we each examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, what about you and me? Knowing what Jesus did for us, ought not we simply follow His will to be a child of His? He has only promised to save those that are in the body, Ephesians 5.23 if that doesn't describe you tonight, maybe at one time you were, but you haven't been faithful. Maybe you have forgotten the sense and the meaning of a song like the one we've studied this evening. You've forgotten those scenes of the cross 2,000 years ago. May we suggest they will never be repeated. There will never be another sacrifice for sins as long as the world shall stand. That was it. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, it says that if we then run roughshod over that one, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Night with ebon pinion brooded o'er the veil. If you and I would wish tonight to make a public response to the Lord's invitation, may I say, if you've never become a Christian, to this point, that death on the cross is, is all for naught for you. You need to apply that blood to your life. That happens as you obey the gospel. Believe with all of your heart Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of those sins. Confess His sweet name as the Son of God and be immersed, baptized in water for the remission of sins. If you've done that and you've known what the sweetness of a song like that at one time meant, but you've allowed the devil far too much leeway, 
And now your life is but a mere shell of what it once was, at least religiously. You realize there's an opportunity tonight to come back to your first love. And so that you could sing a song like this one with vigor, with ardency, with zeal, and with a renewed sense of invigoration. If we could help you tonight by praying to God for your rededication, your forgiveness, oh, how we'd love to do it. Brother Andrew has chosen this song of encouragement, and if at this moment one or more would be in a position to wish to come and for, uh, to allow us to help you, let us know it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.